There are so many great chapters that we have in Isaiah, and I hope that some of these chapters have become ones that you'll embrace and remember and love, these great pictures of a a loving God who is desiring to save his people. Uh, Isaiah 59 is another one of those kinds of chapters. It's just an amazing description of who God is. It reminds us of who we are and what God was going to do about it. Uh, it, it, Beautiful beginning that Isaiah gives for us here in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ears dull that it cannot hear. Remember, you have the people saying, well, we're doing all of these religious things. Why isn't God doing something for us? We're doing our sacrifices. We're doing our offerings. We're trying to look like these Christians, or as we would put it in our terminology, we're trying to look like the people of God, but we're really not. Their hearts were far from God. They did not desire the things of God. We saw that in Isaiah 58 last week. And God is responding here, and He says to them, it's not that I cannot see save you. It's not that I have dull ears and do not hear the things that you are saying. It's not that I do not hear your cries or pleads or that I do not hear your prayers or that I not even that I can't do anything about it. I'm the Almighty God. I can do as I please. But what God wants us to understand is the weight of sin as he goes on in verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. This is what God, I believe, really for all of history, is trying to drive into our minds and into our hearts. To us, sin is not a big deal. I think this is probably one of humanity's big problems. We just don't see the gravity of sin. What's the big deal? You know, I did something that's wrong. I'm sorry. You know, it's almost like a a child to the parent that I didn't clean my room. I'm sorry. You know, but what's the big deal? What does it matter? And, And God over and over again, as he deals with his people, is trying to explain by words and use images to get into our minds how weighty sin is. As soon as we come into the Scriptures and we open to Genesis and we read about Adam and Eve and we read their sins as they violate God's law and we might read it and say, well, what's the big deal? Notice the big deal in that scene. Now Adam and Eve are separated from God. And it's an enormous separation from God. They're not put in time out for a week and now you can come back into the garden and it's okay. You are forever separated from your God. And that's what he's saying here in verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation. The problem is not on God's end of things. The problem is on our end. In the reading that we had for the Lord's Supper, it struck me as it was read, as they mocked our Lord and said, He saved others and does not save himself. He can't save himself. And I'm thinking of this as we're about to do this. And go. Here's God going, it's not that I can't save. 
The problem is not on God's end. The problem remains with us. We come to the law of Moses. We see the same picture. Is Here is God saying, you're not just going to approach me. You're not going to come into the holy of holies of that tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant is and just walk on in. You do not get to approach God. Sin separates you from God. And we read all the details of that priesthood like in the book of Leviticus. And we kind of go, look at all those details. But think about the, the object lesson that's there. Even the priests don't get to come in. They had to be sanctified and get all the defilements off of them so that they could serve, the, or serve God as someone that stood between the people and God Himself. So they would have to be ceremonially cleansed. So they could enter into the tabernacle itself and not into the very presence of God. But just to be able to be there working in that court area to offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people because sin separates. For us, we just go, it's sin. And how hard God tries to impose upon us the idea, do you understand the gravity of sin? Do you understand the weight of sin? And do you understand the consequence of sin, that sin separates us from God? And so God in verse 1 says, the issue is not with me. It's not that my hand is powerless. And it's not that I do not hear what you are saying, but the problem is our sins have created a divide between us and God. And from verse 3 to verse 8, God is now going to describe essentially how He sees us. Here's His point of view. We look at ourselves and we go, well, we're not that bad, right? Listen to God's view. Verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Listen to these absolutes now. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them. No one who treads on them knows peace. We look at sin and go, well, you know, it's really not a big deal. And listen to God just unload his description of his people. He says they're thoroughly wicked. 
And that no one, that no one enters into these things. No one does what is right. Your hands are defiled with iniquity and sin. You're totally wicked in all of the things that you do. Verses four and five, verses five and six, this great imagery of hatching eggs and, and those who eat the eggs die. Basically, all of your actions are sinful and what people do around you, they become defiled by your, your sinfulness as well. Your fruit is sinful. Your actions are sinful. So much so that he even says, your thoughts are sinful. You notice even in verse 7, it's not that they walk to evil. They run to evil. They desire it. They're thinking about it. This is what they want. And our tendency might be to read this and go, wow, Israel was really bad. This is what God is doing. Here's Isaiah prophesying to Israel and saying, look at your condition. Look at your sins. But a lot of these sentences should sound familiar to you because if you remember, Paul quotes a lot of these verses. Over in Romans chapter 3, when he began to describe and said that there are all people, Jews and Gentiles, are under the law of sin. In Romans 3 verse 9, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one is how he begins that. And then he quotes these verses right here that he describes their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed blood. Their thoughts are wicked. The problem is not simply saying, well, Israel's got a problem. Israel is a picture of humanity's problem. That we are full of sin. And we do not do what is naturally right or naturally good. That our bent is toward evil. That essentially without God's intervention, without God revealing light to us, without Him showing us the way, it's full of sin. Our ways are not God's ways. And our paths are not His paths. And our thoughts are not His thoughts. And this is the problem, is that our ways are sinful ways. That the things that we do are a violation of God's law. And that every single person has this sin problem. Every single person is separated from God. And what we read in these verses, though we have the tendency to bristle at it, is a description of us. One of the reasons I know that we bristle at it is I I found... And you might have observed this. Some of the older psalm books, there's a different title for it, but it's basically, it talks about at the cross. And one of the lines in there, it talks about that I can't believe that he would die for such a worm as I. And all the new psalm books change that and said, we can't call ourselves worms. It is such a one as I. Because we don't like to hear that about ourselves. We're not that bad. We're not that sinful. Don't say that about us. God did. That's exactly where we're at. Is here is God looking at humanity and saying, all that I see is wickedness. All that I see is evil out of these people. No one does what is right. No one does 
what is good. Their feet run to evil. Their works are works of iniquity. Violence is in their hands. Their thoughts are thoughts of sins. That is all a description of who we are. And Isaiah has done this many times, especially in these past few chapters, because it is God's goal for us to hear that message of our sinfulness and to accept that condition before him. That we're not going to come before God as if we are good, moral, and right, and we're fine. Think about this is the essence of the problem that Jesus is dealing with in the first century. Is that those who see their spiritual condition, that those who were poor in spirit, they are the ones who are coming to Jesus. They are the ones who are listening to Him. They are the ones who are turning. It is the people who think they are righteous that continue to keep Jesus at arm's length and do not listen to the things that He says. And this is where Isaiah is at in this. Because from verse 9 to the middle of verse 15, you're going to notice as we read it, there's a shift in the objects here. That from verse 3 to verse 8, here is God saying, they don't do what is right. Their thoughts are wicked. They are swift to shed blood. They disobey God. But notice from verse 9 to verse 15, we're going to have a shift to we. Here is now the people, and they are basically confessing and agreeing to what God has said is their sinfulness, which is exactly what God wants. God describes sins, describes our condition, not so that we will bristle at Him and go, no, no, I'm not that bad. How dare you say I've got all these sins? I'm, not, I'm doing okay. Don't you know that I'm better than somebody else in this room? And don't you know that I'm way better than my neighbor? That's not what He wants. He wants us to confess these things. So listen to this confession, verse 9 of Isaiah 59. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness. But we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. This is what God wants. is an admission of our sinfulness before God. 
Here's God coming in and saying, here's your condition. See the weight of your sin. Your sins have separated you from me. Look at all of your wicked ways. Look at your wicked actions. And now you have, it seems, Isaiah now on behalf of the people now saying, you're right. We haven't done what you've said. We are wicked. And you have to love the imagery that he gives here. Like in verse 9, he says, we hope for light. But it's not there. There's no hope in ourselves. Left to ourselves, we have no hope whatsoever. There is no way to be able to deliver ourselves. Verse 10, we're living in the darkness. It's middle of the day. He says it's like twilight outside. He says we're like the blind, stumbling around in the darkness. That's how we are spiritually. We are in the dark. He even goes further in the next verse and then he says, we can't even save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do on this. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. There's nothing we're going to be able to do about this situation. Verse 12, what an image. Our sins are piled up before you. What an image. What an image. Here's how it looks to God. All I see is sin. And our confession to Him should be, yeah. Our sins are piled high before you. And the rest of that verse says, and they testify against us. Every single sin testifies against us. For all that we've done wrong. Verse 13, we've rebelled against Him. We've turned our back against Him. We've denied the Lord. Speaking evil and doing evil, we have done wrong. He's just... Emphasizing Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned from the path. Well, here's the details of it. We have done all kinds of things wrong. And notice how this is described by God in the middle of verse 15. And the Lord saw it. And it displeased him. That's probably a great understatement. Right? Our sins are piled high. God says no one does what is right. No one turns from evil. All are following their own course. All are steeped in sin. And God looks down on this and He says He is displeased by this. An appropriate, it would have been appropriate, it would have been completely appropriate for God at this moment to say, I tried. I I told you how you were supposed to live. I gave you explicit descriptions and commands of what you were supposed to do to follow me. In our language, if we found the break in our scriptures, everything before when Christ arrives, we could just kind of see, find about the spot right there and say... I gave you all of that right there to tell you what you were supposed to do. Thicker than most of the books that we read for fun. I gave you all of that right there. I told you. I explained to you exactly what I wanted. I described it for you exactly what I desired from you. Here's my laws. Here's my ways. Here's my past. And when you sin, it separates you from God. So follow me. Follow me. Obey me. Serve me. 
And he says there was none. And there was no one who did what was right. And it displeased the Lord. And rather than the scriptures just ending there and saying, well, God is just and God tried, but no one wanted to receive and do what he said. Notice the rest of that. Let's read verse middle of verse 15 again. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Now he's looking at the situation and says, they can't do anything themselves. Salvation is far from them. Hope is nowhere near them. They're stumbling around in the dark because of their own sins. And God looks down upon this and basically says, there's no one to intercede. There's no one to do anything about this. The problem lies with us and no human being is going to be able to solve this. No one can turn this around. No one's able to fix this. No one is able to stand between us and God and say, okay, let me help this out. Let me come in on their behalf. Let me intercede for them. The word there that the ESV uses is wondered that there was no one to intercede. The word wondered. A few other translations to get around this kind of difficult Hebrew word. Some say that he was shocked, appalled, astonished, or amazed that there was no one to intercede. And I don't believe the picture is that God came along and was surprised that no one did what was right. Uh, God knew full well that's exactly how that was going to go. He's not wondering at that. The amazement is to the situation itself. It's not that they're, oh, I thought somebody was going to pull this off. He knew us. He knew that we would be sinful. But God is displeased at the situation that stands before him. And this gives us, this gives us another picture of the great love that God has for humanity. That God looks at this situation and says, I'm not going to leave it that way. I'm amazed that this is the situation. I am distraught that this is the situation. I am displeased by this situation. I am devastated by this situation. Verse 16. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will render repayment so that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for which he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. This is an amazing image. God looks around at the situation is how Isaiah paints it. Everybody is full of sin. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Everybody breaks God's law. And God sees it and sees that there is no one to intercede. And He says, I will intercede. 
I will do something about it. He says there in verse 8, His own arm brought salvation, verse 16. His righteousness upheld in verse 17. He puts on the armor, the righteous righteousness breastplate on Him. He puts on the helmet of salvation. He now is ready to go in and do something about this. He is going to deal with our enemies. Unbelievable. That God, rather than saying, you know what, they're all full of sin. God looks and says, I love my creation so much that I will do something about it. I am going to act. I am going to save. I am going to deliver. I am going to do something. And notice that imagery. We referenced it in Ephesians 6 when we did the armor of God. And remember how the armor of God began, that you were to put these articles on to stand against the attacks of Satan, to stand in the evil day. And here is God using this image and saying, I'm going against the enemies. I'm going to do something for you. I am acting on your behalf. I will intercede. I will bring salvation. I will bring righteousness. I will accomplish it because you cannot. Salvation is far from you. Hope is far from you. Your sins have separated you from God and you cannot bring yourself back to Him. But that displeases God so much that He says, I will do something about it. Look at verse 20. And a Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions declares the Lord. Wonderful words. I think the question would just simply be this. Who wants to stop sinning? Who wants to get rid of their sinfulness? Who wants to turn back to God? Who wants to get away from these sinful ways? Verse 20, a Redeemer is coming to Zion. A Redeemer comes To those who turn from their sins. We're stuck in our sins. And he says, I will intercede. I will send a redeemer. And I will redeem those who want to turn away from that condition. I will save those who want to get out of that mess. Who desire to be set free from their sins. God sends the solution For their sins, a redeemer will come and he will be the one to save. He will be the one to deliver. And then notice this promise as it continues in verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant that I make with them. All right. He's going to send a redeemer. We're in our sins. There's no hope for us. But God's going to make a covenant with us. Those who want to turn from their sins. Those who want to get out of this condition. Those who are tired of this sinfulness and being stuck and locked and enslaved in their sins. Here's the covenant that I will make with them. Verse 21. My spirit that is upon you. Stop there. A masculine singular right here. He shifts away from speaking to the people and speaks of an individual. And we've seen an individual from Isaiah 53. We have our servant that is to come. He is our redeemer here in verse 20. He first speaks to him. Here's the covenant that I'm making with my people. My spirit that is upon you, on the Redeemer, 
and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. Here is a promise. God's spirit will be on the Redeemer and it will be on his lips. He will come and he will speak the ways of God. He will show the ways of God. He will live the life that we could not live. He will do what God had called for us to do. He will live it perfectly. Here's the covenant that I make with my people. I'm going to send a Redeemer. My spirit will be upon him and on his lips. And so when you come to the New Testament and you read about Jesus and you read his words and you look at his life and you have Jesus as he begins his ministry and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is declaring to them, I am your redeemer. And the words that I'm speaking are the very words of God. And I am declaring to you the light. And I am showing you hope. I'm showing you the way you should go. I am teaching you the paths of righteousness. Because to yourselves, as we saw in Isaiah 59, we're in the dark. We're stumbling around. We're deep in our sins. We don't know which way to go. We need the light of God. I I would love to impress that upon you for like 15 more minutes if I could. Our own thoughts and our own ways are not the ways to God. What we think is right and what we think is best is totally corrupted by sin. Uh, I remember Ephesians 4, I spun on that for a while, that we are darkened in our understanding and corrupted in our thinking. You described all that right there. The only way out of that condition is that God must show us the way. God must show us the light. He must show us the truth. He must must teach us the way. Because our words, our ways, our thinking are completely broken by sin. We need someone to say, this is the way to go. But we live in a world today that thinks... I can come up with it myself. I'll just live my own way. I can find it within myself. If I just meditate long enough, get away from the world long enough, get on a high mountain long enough, do some exercises long enough, do some kind of weird thing that ever you think you can do, you're going to find truth and you're going to be able to find your way. Isaiah 59. Salvation is far from us. There's no hope in us. And there's no hope in any human. No person can tell you how you ought to go and how you ought to live. We need someone to come and show us. This is the covenant I make with them, us. God sends a redeemer and he shows the way. He becomes the light and we listen to his words and we follow his direction. But the promise isn't done. Notice the rest. Okay, my spirit, verse 21 My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. Okay, Redeemer. Or out of the mouth of your offspring. Or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amazing. Remember in Isaiah 53, we saw something very strange as we saw the suffering servant and it said there that he would see his offspring. 
And that was, you know, we kind of turn our head at that and go, well, that's interesting. Since it's been a description about his death, he's going to see the outcome of his uh, guilt offering. And he will see the offspring that come from that, his children, his people. And he says this great picture here also promised is that the servant redeemer offspring. He says, my spirit will be on their mouth and on the mouth of the children's offspring from this time and forevermore. This is an amazing covenant that the picture that Isaiah has continued to give us is this picture of transformation that will result because of the coming of the Redeemer. The Redeemer will come and the result will be is that he will take ungodly sinners Who are under the wrath of God. As God said in verses 3 through 8. No one does right. No one does good. No one turns from their sins. Their thoughts are continually evil. And then we from verses 9 through 15. Admit it and go. Yep you're right God. I'm completely full of sin. I am completely broken by sin. I'm completely wrecked by sin. God takes those people deserving of His wrath, deserving of condemnation, and makes Him His children and brings them redemption. Unbelievable. Completely unbelievable. The Redeemer comes, He banishes ungodliness, and He takes away their sins, which is how Paul quotes this very line in Romans eleven twenty seven. And to receive the blessing, to belong as children of the Redeemer, to be His offspring. The picture is given here. We must have the words of the Spirit on our lips and in our hearts. I submit to you this is really the very argument that the Apostle Paul is making in Romans 8. Why don't you turn over there, and we're going to spend our last point there. Romans 8. Isaiah has pictured the Redeemer comes, he has the will of God, he will speak the will of God, and his children then will also have their words on their lips, in their hearts, being transformed by those words. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If the if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god or if i could use isaiah 59 21 you're the offspring of god the children of god For you have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself 
bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Isaiah says God makes a covenant. You couldn't save yourself. I send a redeemer. He will save you from your sins. So who wants to turn away from their sins? He's come for them. He's come to take care of people who want to get out of their sinfulness, who want to get out of that sinful state. The Redeemer has come for them. And He is the light and He shows the path and He shows the way. And God's words are on His lips and He teaches us the way we ought to go. And then what happens with that is that those words now live on our lips. And live in our hearts. And start transforming us away. From these sinful activities that Isaiah 59 described. And start moving us toward living according to the spirit. That we are no longer debtors to the flesh and debtors to sin. But now debtors to God. And that everything that we say and that everything that we do is in debt to our God who redeemed us from our sins. We had no business for God to do that for us. Nothing in of ourselves deserved that kind of mercy for God to say. I'm displeased by the sinfulness But rather than pay the consequences for their sins, I will send a Redeemer instead. And with that Redeemer, I will change those wicked lips into lips that praise God. And I will change those wicked hearts into hearts that worship God. Isaiah promised it 700 years in advance. A Redeemer will come. And Jesus is the Redeemer. And through His words, we now know if we are children of God and know if we belong to Him. We're going to sing a song, and this invitation song is an encouragement to you to think about what God has done for you. And have you responded to His invitation? Have you decided to turn away from the life of sin? Because Isaiah said in verse 20, To those who turn from their transgression. That God has made a way for us to be delivered from our sins. But do you want to stop sinning? Do you want to? Are you worn out by sin? Are you sick of it? Worn out by the guilt? Tired of the failure? Sick of the consequences. Weighed down by the heavy burden that sin causes every day in our lives. You ready to get rid of the burden? And you're sick of sin. God says, I've sent a Redeemer. The Redeemer has come to set you free. So that now you can be a child of His. We beg you to just make that decision today. Commit yourself 
dedicate yourself and enter a covenant with God to turn away from your sins. Confessing and believing Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, your Master that you will follow, who died for you so that you could be along to Him. Enter into the covenant by being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. What amazing grace that God has extended to you if you will turn away from sin and love the Lord your God with all your heart for what He's done. Will you come? Will we stand? Will we stand?